new beginnings, right? My wife loves new babies. She is just like, you know, when she comes in here on Sunday mornings now, she's like flying around here. It's awesome. I love new books. That's what I love. And so when I go to a library, I mean, like to a new bo- a bookstore, I got to take sedatives to settle down. I just love new books. We all love new beginnings, weddings, babies, first day of school, new house, new diets, new cars, spring training where hope springs eternal. Even after 12 or 16 or 21 years of school, depending on how far you go, we frame graduation as a new beginning. That's why we call it commencement. I recall as a high school senior needing someone to explain that to me. I thought we were finishing. No, 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 the person said. To commence is to begin and to get on with your life. Well, we need continual new beginnings because things get old fast. Stuff loses its shine and polish. Your baseball team takes about a month to drop out of the race. Of course, some people get addicted to new things, exchanging Cars and wives and careers like an old pair of socks. We don't want that. But legitimately, legitimately, this morning, I want to begin with a question. Where do you need a new beginning in your life? Where do you want to start over and start anew? What if we could find a new beginning that stuck and grew and matured and was perpetually life-giving. Wouldn't that be beautiful, right? It'd be a beautiful thing. Well, the Gospel of John has something profound and wonderful to say about new beginnings. But we've got to pay attention or we'll miss it. Today, I want to do actually two different things. It might even feel like two different messages. The first message will be very short, five to ten minutes, and then the second one will be a little longer. But because we're introducing the book, Mike did a great job last week going through the first 18 chapters. But because there is so much debate and so much conversation and so many uh, history and National Geographic shows that draw questions about the authenticity of the Gospels, I thought it might help us to spend a few moments this morning talking about the other side. Is there evidence that we have for the existence of John's gospel? What do we have? Well, first let me say this, is that experts in ancient literature, and in the gospels in particular, report that after the gospel of John was completed, it was circulated in a book form, along with the three other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, this was at a time beyond simply the large scrolls that you might see related to the Old Testament. Um, The book was not a scroll, but what's called a a codex, a book with separate leaves like ours, sewn and glued together on one side. We actually have a fragment from John's Gospel, chapters 1 through 14, from the late 100s. There is also very probable a small fragment from John 18 dating from the early 100s. Now, in comparison to ancient literature, that is a remarkably remarkably short amount of time from when 
the person lived till we have their first written record. Well, a few other pieces of evidence. The first time the Gospel of John is quoted, it's quoted very often. Uh, the Gospel of John is quoted often. Uh, different times, uh, John's actual name is ascribed to the quote. The very first one comes from a man named Theophilus. He lived in Antioch in A.D. 181. He quoted from the Gospel of John as an authoritative source about the life of Jesus and ascribed John's name to it. Now, but to go even back further, let me introduce you to an old guy named Polycarp. Some of you have probably heard of him. Now, we know about Polycarp because of a man named Irenaeus. You may have also heard about of Irenaeus, but here's some facts about Polycarp. He uh, died at 86, born around 70 uh, AD. He was martyred. Polycar- Irenaeus We have his writings. He wrote uh, uh, many books. But Irenaeus had a relationship with Polycarp. And Polycarp had a relationship with the apostles. This is what Irenaeus wrote in regard to his conversation with this man. He said he reported... Well, first he says, um, "I I can speak even of the place in which the blessed Polycarp sat and disputed, how he came in and went out, the character of his life, the appearance of his body the discourse which he made to the people, and how he, Polycarp, reported his conversations with John, and how with the others who had seen the Lord, how he remembered their words, and what were the things concerning the Lord which he had heard from them, including his miracles and his teaching, and how Polycarp had received from them the eyewitnesses of the word of life, and reported all things in agreement with the Scriptures. So from John, who knew Polycarp, and Polycarp, who knew Irenaeus, we begin to have even external evidence that builds on the gospel itself that this indeed is an authentic witness to the life of Jesus. D.A. Carson is a well-respected historian and theologian inside and outside the church, he says there is no reason to doubt that Polycarp knew John, Andrew, and Philip, and the apostles of Asia. And again, most scholars recognize that the John referred to that Irenaeus wrote about was indeed John the Apostle, John the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. And Irenaeus would say the same thing. From the second century on, very early, There is wide agreement in the church as to the reliability of John retelling the life of Jesus. Now keep in mind, we said this before, that a book being accepted into this Bible, what's called canonization, a book being accepted into this Bible was not only the result of a few privileged men hell-bent on preserving their status. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were confirmed and entered into this book. Why? Because they conformed. They agreed to a strong, consistent, oral tradition that developed within decades, within decades of the life of Jesus, long before the text could be corrupted. Within a few years... Following his resurrection, Jesus' teaching 
and miracles were being preserved by the communities of Christ's followers that had risen up and emerged. The reason these Gospels were accepted is because eyewitnesses were still a part of these communities. And they could corroborate the message and the story. This is where they gained their authority as authentic witnesses. So, to summarize, there is lots of internal evidence and there is lots of external evidence that this gospel was written by John of Zebedee and that he, as an eyewitness to Jesus, gives us an authentic retelling of his life and his message. So, again, just a little bit of an outline here. Who is John? He is an early disciple to Jesus and brother to James. When did he write? Around 85 to 95 A.D., Where did he write it from? It's suggested that he wrote it from Ephesus in Asia. And more importantly, why did he write? And here, let's go directly to the scriptures because John tells us why he wrote this book. And he's going to give you two reasons. Look at John chapter 20. And if you're using the Bible in front of you, it is page 907. And it is highlighted by the, the, uh, the paragraph liner, headliner, called The Purpose of This Book. <laughs> Very simple. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe, one, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And two, that by believing, you may have life, life in his name. John wants to demonstrate without question, Jesus of Nazareth was a son of God. This book book has a very evangelistic impulse. It's possible John was trying to reach out to Jews or to Gentile converts to Judaism. He may have been in conversation with them. And John also wants every reader to know that Jesus is the source of life. Not just physical existence. Not just surviving, getting up every day and going through the motions. But Jesus Christ came to give a life of meaning and of purpose and of fulfillment because he understands the very essence of what life is. Listen, as we walk through these pages this next year, Jesus as the life giver drips from the pages of John. A full life here, continuing and perfected in the life to come. These words, virtually right in the middle of the gospel, speak to his purpose for coming. John 10.10. Christ said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. It might be overflowing. So many of us, we 
think about life and we think that life will happen when my external circumstances are rearranged. And if you are waiting for your life to take on meaning and essence and purpose and happiness when your external circumstances are rearranged, friend, you're going to be waiting a long time. It's really about what happens internally. It's really about what happens inside of you. It's really about an inside reconstruction and remaking. It's why we've entitled this series, Reclaiming Life. Jesus saved you if you're in Christ this morning. He saved you not only from being lost in eternity, but He desires to save you now from the effect of sin in your life. Sin... Let's go back, if we could, um, Josh, just for a moment to John 10.10. Sin has a ravaging effect on our lives. The thief here likely refers to Satan. But he exploits us and our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. And sin has a ravaging impact on us. It steals and it kills and it sucks life from you. Sin wreaks havoc on us from the inside out. That's why I'm contending that fulfillment is not a matter of external change. It's a matter of internal reconstruction. It's a matter of learning to deal and address the sin areas in our lives that have wrecked our lives, that have hurt us, that have brought us unnecessary... Believe me, there's pain to live in this world. There, whether you are righteous or sinful, there is pain to live in this world. Believe me, there is. But there is also unnecessary pain we invite into our lives. We open a door and say, hey, come on in. We invite it in because we allow something other than Jesus Christ to be the foundation of our lives. We place ultimate value on something else other than Jesus Christ. We seek to build an identity on wealth, our status, our privilege, or some other counterfeit. And that wrecks our lives. I like what Nick shared here earlier this morning, talking about an identity only in Christ. We get detoured, we stray when we move from building our identity, building the foundation of our life, giving ultimate value primarily and only to God and solely to God. Sin is not only, you know, it's just not, you know, drinking, chewing and dating girls that do. You know, it's not only these external behaviors. It is, it is deeper. It is a part of what you, it is the way you build your life. And I don't think many of us realize how deeply ingrained comfort and wealth and eating at nice restaurants and going on nice vacations and how all these things are deeply ingrained in us and are so ultimately valuable and important to us. And when we give these things ultimate value and importance, I'm telling you, they will have a reverberating impact on our lives. That's what sin does. And part of the freedom of the gospel is that we have the empowerment to break free from sin. 
to find freedom and power to change from the things that enslave us. Would you like to be free this morning? Would you like to experience the power to change? Would you like to reverse the ravaging impact and the separation that comes from self-centeredness and self-preoccupation and selfishness and sinfulness? Then keep coming back because this will be a theme in John. We will, you'll be amazed how often life, life comes into place. Life here, continuing in the life to come. Perfected in the life to come. And yet having a dramatic effect on us here. Pray with me for a moment. Father, Father, in your name, we come before you this morning as a body of believers and we worship you as God, as our Father. We confess to you our limits, our weaknesses, our sins this morning. God, we confess that we have built our foundation We've often viewed ourselves and placed other things ahead of you. Wealth, status, privilege, the success of our children. God, these things have become more important to us than you. We confess this morning our sinfulness, our selfishness. Father, we thank you that Christ exchanged his life for ours, died for us, died for those very sins individually, corporately. And now we thank you, Father, for the word that imparts life and impart life to us today, God. Don't let us walk out of here without being affected by your word, without receiving life through your word. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Okay, turn back to John chapter 1 with me, if you would. Now, okay, so message 1, done. Introduction to John. Message 2. Let's pick up where Mike left off at verse 29. You remember uh, Mike showed us how uh, there were stunning claims about Jesus. And uh, about Jesus being the Word. And that Word was with God. This is all verse 1. Indeed, the Word was God. And then in verse 14, the Word became what? Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So to strengthen his case, John is now going to offer up the testimony of another John, John the Baptist, beginning at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny But confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Well, they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Well, why are you baptizing? If you were neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. 
Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus by baptizing people. Thus the name, John the Baptist. His preaching, and we get some help from the other Gospels to fill in the, fill in the gaps here. His preaching was powerful and compelling. He preached a message of individual repentance. He told them that being an ethnic Jew was not enough, that there needed to be uh, a personal encounter with God and personal repentance. Large crowds responded to his message. It created a visible stir amongst the people. And the authorities are wondering, you know, who in the world is this strange character with the funny clothes and the funny smell, eating funny things coming from the wilderness? I mean, it was, must have just been bizarre to them. And remember, the authorities were very, um, very overly academic and very overly intellectual. And here's this guy without training, without education, creating a stir, and he looks weird. He looks all whacked out. And they don't get it. And they're sort of wondering, like, is he, you know, uh, the, 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 the very last words of the Old Testament predicted a, a prophet-like, Elijah-like figure who would be present at the end time. And there was uh, wondering, is, is he a part of this? That's why the idea of Elijah comes up here. John flat out says, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not, a, I'm not the prophet. I'm not the Christ. Later on, actually, Jesus would assert that John the Baptist was an Elijah, but, Elijah, but John the Baptist would not take that title for himself or assert it for himself. John goes back to Isaiah 40 to ground his calling. Isaiah 40, make ready the way of the Lord. I am a forerunner of the coming King and His kingdom. Well, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing? Now, it's helpful to know that baptism was not an unknown entity. Baptism just didn't begin with the church. It had been practiced in various cultures for, for a long time. Currently, presently, Jewish converts were baptized. And as well, there was a very strict community outside of Jerusalem. They actually practiced daily baptism as a way of helping them prepare for what they perceived to be the end of, end of time. But in both cases, according to D.A. Carson, those baptisms were self-administered. They were administered by the individual. So this is really different. John's actually doing the baptizing. But John takes this question of authority, which he's answered, and he uses it to talk more about his favorite subject, and that's Jesus. I'm nothing compared to this one. He's far more important than I am. And John continues this theme earlier in the chapter, affirming, witnessing to the overwhelming greatness of Jesus. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, he says. Now, there, this is an idiom. 
It would have been familiar to this culture. Um, in this culture, a uh, teacher was expected, or a student was expected to do everything their teacher wanted, like a slave to a master, except one thing. Guess what that one thing was? One thing the, the student was exempted from, from doing to his teacher. Taking off his shoes. Untying his shoes. And the Baptist says, even that one. Even that one. I'm not worthy. He's so great. I'm not worthy to do that one. Okay. Look at verse 29. Next passage here. Let's keep moving. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. Here's his witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness. Here's his climax. Here's his conclusion. I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Lamb of God would be the first of many amazing titles throughout this entire chapter. Rabbi, Messiah, Christ, Son of God, King of Israel, Son of Man. Now, let's pause for a moment. There's something we should explain right here with this. This, this is confusing for some. Because you have a, a very early and a very, uh, in a sense, full confession of who is Jesus. And there are some historians, we, we, we have learned in previous uh, messages that the disciples really didn't get it, really didn't understand who Jesus was until just a few weeks prior to the crucifixion. In the confession that Mark gave, Jesus asked, who do, you, who do you say I am? And Mark said, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Finally, the disciples were getting it. So how does that square with this very early on in the ministry of Jesus, these, these confessions? Again, some reject the historicity of John because of this very point. Well, two things have to be considered. And again, I cite D.A. Carson. Two things must be considered. First is this. Some of the early disciples were followers of John the Baptist. They were earnest, hungry uh, for growth and hungry for the kingdom of God. And they were following John the Baptist. And at the height of John the Baptist's ministry, John says, go follow him. Go follow him. Him. What would make them abandon John or abandon John for this unknown guy from Galilee? Unless John the Baptist was saying, There he is. That's the one. Go follow him. Secondly, and maybe more importantly, it's important for us to realize that using the titles alone does not mean they got it. <laughs> I mean, even when Jesus, even when Peter said, You are the Messiah, 
the Son of God. Remember what happened next? Peter rebuked Jesus and tried to talk him out of the cross. He still didn't fully understand what it meant. These confessions here express more of a hope, more of a theoretical longing than they do concrete faith. And by the way, John will continually remind us of how much the disciples just misunderstood and didn't get it. You know, we often profess things that we don't fully believe, right? Does it happen to you? Does your mouth ever get ahead of your heart? What couple about to be married knows what the title husband or the title wife truly means and truly entails? Yeah, I'm going to be a husband or I'm going to be a wife. Do you really know what that means? Or what new mom or dad claiming the title of parent really knows what that means and the cost as well as the joy of embracing it? What entrepreneur hiring their first employee taking the title of boss or president really knows what that means to lead someone? Again, these confessions were expressions of hope rather than real faith. But that would come. Doesn't that help us? There's some help here for you and me. There's some hope for you and me. It shows that our coming to a genuine confession often involves stages or steps of faith and understanding, just like theirs did. Our journey is, you know, we're 2,000 years apart from there, but our journey in so many ways is no different than their journey. And it often involves stages and steps of understanding, replacing misunderstanding for us as well. And so we see what John's witnesses. You see, it's so interesting. John heard from, heard from God the Father that the one on whom the Spirit descends like a dove, that is the coming one. And look at what the Spirit does. It's interesting. The Spirit comes in the form of a dove and it says it remains on him. And Jesus, according to what John says, is thus empowered to not only baptize with water, but to also baptize with the Holy Spirit. That, by the way, was foretold in the Old Testament. We'll look at a passage in just a moment, but in places like Joel chapter 2, or Isaiah 44, or Ezekiel 36, it was foretold that God would pour out His Spirit upon His people in a more complete and full way. The act of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in the form of of a dove helps John reach a climatic conclusion. The entire purpose of his ministry had been to usher in the coming king. And with this affirmation from God the Father, he could now say convincingly, this is the one we've waited for. And so John the Apostle adds this testimony of John the Baptist to verify that this indeed was a son of God. Now, I want to take just a few moments here, looking at these two passages. And I don't have like, hey, here's point one, point two, and point three. Okay? Rather, what I have this morning, just in application for a few moments here, is for us to, is to ask a few questions 
And for us to think about this picture of baptism and what it implies, what it infers for our lives. And I'm sure there will be multiple points of application that will spin out in your life, but I'm going to allow you to make those, I desire you to make those in conjunction with the Spirit. Okay, here's something that's incredible that we see that's amazing. And I I credit Tim Keller for pointing this out. Do you notice how in Jesus' baptism, there is the commitment and the involvement of the entire triune God? Did you notice that? The Spirit comes like a dove. The Spirit comes on Jesus Christ, the Son. And the Father has spoken to John in relation to recognition. We see the three jointly working together. Now, where else do we see the three working together in John chapter 1? Again, Mike hinted at this last week. We see it in verse 1. We see the same three jointly working together at creation. At creation, we see God, God's Spirit, and God's Word through which He creates. Creation was a project of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that was the beginning. In the Scriptures begin with those three words. In the beginning. So what's happening here? Jesus' baptism was a new beginning. A recreation. A reclaiming of the life that was lost. A launching of a new kingdom. A project to turn back the power of sin that ravages and replace it with a power that restores and redeems and remakes humanity according to His image. And how does Jesus define this new life? This is really cool. How does He define this new life? It is a life revived by His Spirit. It's revived by His Spirit. This new beginning is pictured by baptism through immersion. John baptizing in the Jordan provided this physical picture, this painting, so to speak, of baptism. And in the baptism customs of the day, he immersed the whole body of the individual seeking to prepare for the coming king. The word baptism literally means to dip, to place into, to immerse. The same Greek word is used to describe the Pharisees ceremonially washing their cups and dishes. Now, baptism also carries with it the inference of an overwhelming experience. And that use of the word baptism is with us 2,000 years later, to this very day. We still say today that a person who uh, launches into something new or experiences some overwhelming experience or intense challenge that they were baptized by fire. Baptism by immersion pictures something. Baptism by immersion pictures being all in. All in. I'm all in. It's not halfway. 
It was a complete and total commitment to a new way of life, a new way of thinking, a new center, a new source of power. It was a total new orientation to life. It was a commitment and not looking back. This is one reason why we practice immersion here. It pictures an unforgettable way of being all in. Immersed in making God first in your life, building the foundation upon Him and giving Him alone ultimate value and ultimate significance. Baptism leaves on the person getting baptized an indelible impression. It pictures following Jesus as the driving vision of your life. Not wealth, not status, not privilege, not a certain neighborhood, not certain luxuries, not a certain reputation, or whatever other counterfeit that tends to capture and ignite your heart apart from God. We seek to say the same thing. It's the same sense of covenant that we say in the commitment of marriage. Again, Rich mentioned we had a wedding yesterday involving two of our staff. And I was just, again, struck with the words that they shared. Because Christian marriage suggests for two people, a man and a woman, you're all in. I am all yours, all yours, and you are mine, all mine. You know, I don't know if any of you appreciate that the way that most of the world, particularly Western culture, and really uh, the world over, uh, for a long time, hundreds of years, has adopted, has understood a Judeo-Christian view of marriage, uh, even by millions of people who are not Christians or Jews. And yet it pervaded the world. And of course, you and I stand now in the cusp of this historical undershifts where that very concept now is quickly losing ground. And you can see that marriage is now taking on all sorts of definitions, way beyond just gay or lesbian, all sorts of definitions and, 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 and ways of viewing marriage. And we shouldn't, as Christians, we should not at all be surprised by that. Why are you surprised by that? Shouldn't be. If there's no longer some sort of Judeo-Christian center, then by all means we can define marriage however we want to define it. But as Christians, we define marriage, I am yours, all yours. You are mine, all mine. I will never leave you. I will forsake all others just for you. Can you imagine a different custom? One without covenant? Hey, let's try this for 10 years and then reassess. Or let's stay with this if we feel the same way about each other. Hey, is it okay if once a year we both do whatever we want with whomever we want? That would be kind of cool. Then come back together? How about we be committed to each other 364 days out of the year? How about that? Can't we take a little time off for somebody else? The Bible, the scriptures don't view marriage that way, and it doesn't view baptism that way. 
John says there's one greater than me and he will baptize spiritually. He will immerse you in the life of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Take a quick look with me at Acts chapter 2. The next book over. A few short years. Well, I mean, actually just days, really. 50 days. 40 or 50, um, forgive me, I can't remember, after the ascension. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And here we have corporately, corporately the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the prophets to pour out the Spirit on the church. And look at how the Spirit comes. And the Spirit uses pictures that were, were familiar When the day of Pentecost arrived, verse 1, they were all together in one place, the remaining community of Jesus. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We don't have time to talk about wind and fire, but they are powerful pictures, along, of course, with water. They are powerful pictures of the Holy Spirit coming. On this day of Pentecost, the church was born. The age that we still live in, the age of the church, is still here. The Spirit was given to the church on that day. And the Spirit was given to each and every believer as foretold by the prophet Joel. Look at verse 17. Peter was asked about what in the world is going on. This is crazy. And Peter goes back to the prophet Joel. Perhaps this was one of the places that Jesus took Peter when he was explaining to them what the kingdom of God is during that 40-day that forty day interlude. He says, and in the last days it shall be, this, Peter, this, Peter says, this is what's going on. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. The spirit is going to come and every single believer has the opportunity to interact, to engage, and be baptized, immersed fully by the Holy Spirit. Look at one more verse with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 and 13. Okay, what happened in Acts chapter 2 was a one-time event. A corporate baptism of the Holy Spirit on the church. The baptism like that does not necessarily happen again. But you and I can enter into what happened there. You and I can enter into that baptism. We can be baptized by the Holy Spirit by entering the church through becoming a follower of Jesus. And I mean church with a capital C, the universal church of Christ. We can enter it through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul says here. For just as the body, the church, is one 
with many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You come into a relationship with God through Jesus. He baptizes you. He immerses you. He plunges you in the waters of the Holy Spirit. I believe the baptism of the Spirit encapsulates, it captures the whole of the Spirit's work in our lives. He seals us. He fills. He convicts. He empowers. He changes our desires. He plants a seed in us that if we will cultivate it, it will produce love for His people. It will produce love for His Word. It will even produce a greater love for the world that He's set us in. He produces fruit in us. I like how one person characterized fruit as excess life. We'll learn to love what God loves. God loves the physically poor and the spiritually poor. In scriptures, we see over and over again how he identifies with the poor and seeks after the spiritually lost. We'll learn to love what he loves. We'll learn to value what he values. We'll learn to value people. We'll learn to love people. Some people treat the Spirit as a separate entity, uh, as a thing even, as, as, a, as an it. But as John will open to us later through the, his gospel, we'll see the Spirit never operates in independence of Jesus. The Spirit is always seeking to glorify and honor Jesus. The Spirit is seeking to fill the body of Christ and to extend the kingdom of Christ all over the world. Indeed, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity have been engaged in a process of self-emptying and living for the other and living to lift up the other and glorify and honor the other. The Trinity is the very ground of our community, the church. In the same way as husband, as wife, as church member to church member, as parent to child, we are engaged in a process of self-emptying and learning to be others-oriented. That is the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us, changing us from being those sinful, selfish, small, broken-up, disintegrated, ravaged people to becoming a people that are being put back together, who have integrity, who are beginning to become whole, and who learn to empty ourselves and to live for the other and not ourselves. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's the basis of our community and it is the power of the Holy Spirit that creates The big idea, I think, the theological point for us to get out of this passage is simply this. Is that immersing ourselves in the life of the Spirit opens up new beginnings for us. Let me say it one more time. Immersing ourselves in the life of the Spirit opens up new beginnings 
for us. Are you immersed in the Spirit today? Are you drowning in the Spirit today? Maybe you never realized Jesus was asking for so much. Like many people in the Gospels, people came to Jesus and received so much more than they asked for. They asked for one thing and got another. But they also didn't realize that in that faith transaction that Jesus was asking for far more than they ever expected to give. Perhaps you've been holding back from him. Perhaps you've been content with just a few drops of water when Jesus wants you to be completely immersed. You need a new beginning this morning. Others of you externally are very committed and you do all the right things and externally people would look at your life and say, wow, you are an outstanding, stellar Christian. But inside, you are decaying. You know that the external, what looks to be the case on the outside is not at all reflected on what's on the inside. You think and you see the Christian life more as a moral journey, not a life to be lived by faith in God through Christ. It's about your pride. It's about your determination to make it. You've held to a false belief that the goal of the Christian life is to suppress wrong desires through greater resolve, through greater self-will. And the harder you try, the more you fail. You as well this morning need a new beginning, empowered, revived by the Holy Spirit. And so I end with this final question. Nick, you guys can come on up. I end with this final question. Where today do you need a new beginning? Where today do you need a new beginning? Where is that desert dry place? Look at one final verse. I think we have it actually for us. Isaiah 44, 3. So often when the prophets spoke of the Spirit, they pictured it as water. And they may have pictured that water coming in the Near East when it was hot, it was hot, it was parched, it was dry. But these torrential storms would come And they would bring rain and they would revive and they would renew that dry, parched land. Where in your life, where in your experience do you need the Spirit to be poured into you? Where is that place in your heart? I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I will pour my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Where is that place that you need God to start a new beginning and you need His Spirit, His Holy Spirit? And I'm going to lead us here to pray and I just want to encourage you to pray a simple prayer to identify that area, to first identify that place where you need God to speak that's dead and dry and decaying, disintegrating. And I want to encourage you to say, God, I'm not happy with where I'm at. I'm not content with where I'm at. I want you to pour out your spirit into this part of my life. I want to be immersed by the Holy Spirit. Or I want to stop holding back. Or I want to stop trying to do it on my own and trying to live out this moral life on my own. God, I want your Holy Spirit to do it through me. God, I want more of your spirit. Immerse me in your spirit. What is the prayer? What prayer is God bubbling up in your heart right now 
Let's take a moment, stop and pause and give you an opportunity to express that longing to God right here in this present moment. If you want Him. If you want Him. Father, there are so many things that as a follower of You for over three decades, I still find myself building my identity on how successful of a pastor I am or how successful as a parent I am. And Father, I tell you that so often I give these things ultimate value, ultimate significance. And I ask you to forgive me for that. I want to build my life alone on you. I want you to enter into the dry places of my life and the places where I I thought life was in a different circumstance. I thought life was in some different outcome. But God, you've said, no, it's, it's what's going on inside of you that makes the difference. It's what's going on in your own heart where you're missing it. It's the internal stuff. And Father, I pray that you'd help me to deal with the sin in my life, the misplaced hopes, the misplaced trust, and God, to give you that sole place in my heart, that sole foundation of my existence. I need help, God. I, I'm like that guy that has trouble believing says to you, Jesus, help my unbelief. I, I doubt, but help my unbelief. That's where I'm at, Lord. Help my unbelief. And so, God, lead us now into a place where we might open up our hearts and trust you and ask you to bring in your spirit to our very dry and empty souls, right in the place that we need it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, um, we're going to take the bread and juice this morning and we're going to sing a couple songs together as a way for us to respond to the Word of God. We listen to God's Word. We've heard His Word and the life that comes through it and now we have an opportunity to respond to it. We've gone a little bit later than we normally go and so we recognize that you may need to make another commitment. That's fine. But uh, we'll conclude here by taking the bread and juice together.